Hello, and welcome back to The Infinite Room, a little room in which Looking Glass imagines big things. I'm Andy White, Looking Glass Ensemble member and director of community engagement. And it is July in Chicago, and even in this highly unusual pandemic year, there are still some things you can count on. It will be hot, there will be cicadas, which you might hear in the background, and the anniversary of the worst racial violence in Chicago's history will be largely ignored and forgotten. That's right, I'm talking about the race riots of 1919, the Red Summer, as it became known, because of the bloody race riots that erupted in more than 25 cities across the country. Here in Chicago, on July 27, 1919, 17-year-old Eugene Williams took refuge from the summer heat by swimming and playing with friends on a small wooden raft just off Chicago's 25th Street Beach. When his raft drifted south towards the quote-unquote white beaches, George Stauber and other white youth started throwing stones at the young black man on his raft. One hit Eugene in the head, he fell into Lake Michigan, and drowned. His death, and the refusal of the police to arrest the perpetrators, ignited the Chicago race riots, a week of the worst racial violence in the city's history. There is a single, medium-sized stone at the beach where Eugene Williams died, commemorating his death. Other than that, there is precious little that you can find on the streets of Chicago that tells the story of that week those who died, those who fought back, or the root causes of the violence. Why, it's almost as if we don't want to remember those events. It's almost as if we want to lock them away in our past and just pretend they didn't happen. And it's almost as if our doing so, our erasure of the injustices of our past, will result in further injustices in our present and likely in the future. But what if there were people who were dedicated to bringing that past, as tragic and hard to bear as it might be, into public light? In a moment when the country is hotly arguing about which monuments should still stand and which should come down, what if there were an effort afoot to honor those who fell to the city's bloody racial past through public works of art, available for all to see at any time. Well, that is the goal of our two guests today, Dr. Peter Cole and Dr. Franklin Cozy Gay. They will each tell you more about who they are in just a second, but together they form the duo behind the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. You can learn all about them at chicagoraceriot.org. Let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with them now. Thank you both, first of all, for joining this episode of The Infinite Room and joining the conversation. Before we start talking about specifically and really getting into the details of the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project, Franklin, I wanted to hear from you first a little bit about the work you're doing with the Chicago Center for Youth Violence Prevention yeah, super uh, excited about this. Um, so I am the executive director for the Chicago Center for Youth Violence Prevention, and I've been doing this work for about 20 years. The previous 15 years of my work has primarily been focused on working in communities that have high levels of exposure to violence, which essentially means in the Chicago context, black and brown communities, um, you know, on the west side, northwest side, primarily African-American and Latinx communities, as well as on the south side, same communities. Primarily, our work had focused on schools as our anchors. And what we found and what prevention science has really pointed to is that you definitely get more bang for your buck in terms of doing programming that has multiple levels of influence when it comes to programs. And what that means is what ways can you work on individual level change, but also relational level change 
um, focusing on families and peers and youth. And so most of our work has primarily focused on those three realms. And we've had a lot of positive evidence through family-based work that started in the late 90s uh, that I've been a part of following families that have been involved in support group sessions that follow those youth through high school and has been able to show some positive impact in our programs. But it wasn't until 2015 with the work that we're doing with Pastor Chris Harris at Bright Star Community Outreach that community stakeholder voice was more upfront. And um, Pastor Harris already mobilizing the community around, hey, I recognize that I'm a credible, trusted messenger when it comes to um, exposure to violence, interpersonal violence, but also structural, right? And Bronzeville is rich with examples of, of structural violence. That is, whether they're the largest school closing in the United States history, largest public housing closing in the United States history, all happened in Bronzeville. Pastor Harris had already recognized, hey, I have a network of supporters. I also know that as a faith leader, I am someone that people can trust when it comes to addressing issues around interpersonal violence, when it comes to challenging policy level decisions and practicing practices that um, are connected to structural violence. We really lucked out on the opportunity where there was a call for an academic community partnership from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And essentially our work is around the coalition functioning and building capacity of over 70 partners that Pastor Harris has convened around really reducing violence and strengthening community. Okay, thank you. That's you know, a helpful background because it'll obviously play a role in describing why you think the Chicago Race Riot Commemoration Project, what that has to do with that knitting together of community. Before we get to that, though, Peter, do you want to talk a little bit about the, your area of focus? I'm a professor of history. I work at Western Illinois University which is in Macomb, and that's about four hours southwest of Chicago by train or car. I've been teaching there for about 20 years. Along the way, I became a part-time resident of Chicago, and so I sort of have a, what I say, dual residency. I teach U.S. history. I teach African-American history. I teach South African history. All of these things connect me to, well, the work that Franklin and I are doing on the Chicago Race Riot Project. How did you two meet? What brought you two together? The Greater Bronzeville Community Action Council is one of the pillars for the work that we're doing around strengthening community and reducing violence through this work that's led by Pastor Chris Harris and supported by our center. The group, the Greater Bronzeville Community Action Council, works around making sure that there's equitable distribution of resources for all schools in Bronzeville. Related to that, there are different programs that focus on getting people to critically analyze the current context in the school systems, but in the community in general. And as a result, we have guest speakers that come. And in January of 2019, Peter was an invited guest from Elisa Bunton, who serves on the executive committee, who works over on community affairs for the Illinois Institute of Technology, or IIT. Mm -hmm. And Peter talked about this project, me being, you know, Southsider, me being someone that went to elementary school in Bronzeville, the influence that my dad had on me or still has to this day on me in terms of making connections with history to the present day. I was like a, a kid in the candy shop hearing Peter talk about the Chicago race riot, mm. um, hearing Peter bring up the fact that it's the 100th anniversary. Um, but here's Peter saying, hey, this is something that we need to do, um, recognizing that through the Greater Bronzeville Community Action Council, 
we typically have at minimum 20 different schools represented at our monthly meeting, okay. which that means that we have the ears of 20 different schools. So for Peter, education campaign was important. Getting this information out to schools was important, but also community support, recognizing that Pastor Harris had already convened many different community partners. This is a way to get a lot of people on board. Mm-hmm. And long story short, I volunteered to assist Peter towards his effort. Can you talk a little bit about the event of the summer of 1919? So I'm a historian, right? The history of 1919 in Chicago, and in fact, the so-called Red Summer of 1919, when about 25 American communities erupted in racial violence, is uh, wildly unknown um, by ordinary people and poorly taught in many communities. It's no secret, um, and it's not a conspiracy that this isn't known, but nevertheless, like many parts of U.S. history that are unpleasant, but also reflect poorly upon the ideals of the United States, in particular of the notions of freedom and equality for all. These aspects of our history have um, for far too long been ignored, denied, forgotten, disappeared, if you will. Not a conspiracy, but nevertheless very real. I, of course, knew this because I've taught in Illinois for 20 years. And um, my students come from Chicago and the suburbs in downstate Illinois, and none of them know the history of 1919. But it's not because they're young people. Um, Their parents don't know it, right? There is simply a great example of how we do such a poor job in our country, in my opinion, about teaching the true history. One possibility is that because truthfully, the white majority um, haven't wanted to sort of emphasize the history of racial oppression, why would they, right? Like, uh, because that only therefore then opens up all sorts of other questions about what should or could happen. And so with that as a sort of background, let me just say quickly that in, during World War I, and which began in 1914, but America declared war in 1917, resulted in this huge labor shortage. And as a result of this labor shortage, industrial cities like Chicago um, had these huge demand for workers. Um, Black folks who, about 90% of whom still lived in the American South at that time, seized the opportunity of this labor shortage to basically flee the horrors of the Jim Crow South for um, better opportunities outside of the South in New York and Cleveland and Chicago. Um, Chicago was a booming industrial center and so became a destination of choice for many Southern black people. Yeah, Um, unfortunately, even though black people still made up under 5% of the population, even during the war with the inflated population of black migrants, um, uh, a growing number of white people were increasingly angry, right, um, at this um, perceived invasion by African Americans. Um, And so um, tensions emerged in the political sphere, in many workplaces, including the stockyards, and also in neighborhoods. And so that's the sort of background for um, a hot Sunday afternoon, July 27th, 1919, where um, some black children um, went to the beach in order to cool off, um, like we still do in Chicago, um, except, of course, when there's a pandemic and the lake is closed, right? Like uh, (laughs) that, um, you know, that this... um, America was uh, supposedly the South was legally segregated and the, uh, outside of the South, it wasn't. But as we know, there was de facto segregation already in place. Blacks were only allowed, if you will, to go to one beach. And so these black children went to this beach, which was roughly at 25th Street. Um, and as these kids went swimming in, in, in the lake and as they drifted southward um, towards what is 29th Street, right? Um, some white people on the so-called white beach, um, policing a so-called white line in the uh, lake, um, started throwing rocks at these children. Um, and one 
child, Eugene Williams, age 17, was killed. Um, and when his friends went back to the beach and ran down to try to get that white man arrested, um, a white police officer refused to arrest that white man who had killed that black boy. And that white police officer refused to allow a black police officer to arrest that white man. Um, and tensions started to escalate on the beach. Rumors started to spread. And then that evening, essentially, uh, gangs of white men from Bridgeport, Irish American predominantly, um, one called the Hamburg Athletic Club, another called Reagan's Colts, started to randomly attack black people in the neighborhood that then was called the Black Belt, um, but subsequently is better known now as Bronzeville. Um, and uh, that sort of exploded. And then after a week, roughly 38 people had been killed, 537 injured, over 1,000 left homeless, right? Uh, the worst incident of racial violence in the history of the city, utterly unknown by Americans and Chicagoans a century later. And as you mentioned, it was actually a summer full of violence across 25 or 26 different cities across the country. That's why James Weldon Johnson, the activist and artist who also wrote the so-called Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, yeah. um, also coined the phrase Red Summer, right? Like uh, for the blood we bleed, um, if not coincidence, right? That really from 1917 through the early 1920s, there was a huge uptick in in white violence against black people in the South and outside of the South. Um, but in the summer of 1919, uh, there were dozens of these, and that's not a coincidence, right? And so although there's always particular sparks, I mean, ultimately the underlying cause is that white people didn't like black people, right? Um, in fact, we're willing to kill them. But um, there's many sort of issues related. Um, economic ones are important, no question, but we like to highlight really the neighborhood issues, which really sort of also help us understand the outcomes of 1919, which is that the violence is so ugly that city leaders still want to contain black people, but can use other subtle, legal, nonviolent, overtly violent ways in order to contain black people. And so this is this long, complicated story. But Franklin and I like to highlight that really this is the birth of a sort of the story of residential segregation in the city of Chicago, because it didn't proceed the, uh, the riots. It really sort of is a story of after the riots that segregation becomes much more hardened. Up, upwards of 30 bombings prior to the killing of Eugene Williams. Um, these bombings were of black homes and, 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 and black realtors who were selling black people homes in previously white areas. So only one of those instances was anyone even arrested, let alone tried. Right. And so basically there is open season on black people across the south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, against black people who are simply wanting to move into, well, want to live where they want to live, right? Like, uh, and so the economic conflicts are real, but really it's arguably the neighborhood issues that are driving this as much, if not more so, right? Really sort of white people not wanting to coexist with black folks whose numbers are increasing. And so therefore logically are sort of spilling out, if you will, of the area that they had been sort of pushed into originally. And, and so that's somewhat unique to Chicago, but really sort of the, the deeper issues are hostility to black seeking equality and freedom. And so as Peter described, you know, the house bombings, as we talk about the violence connected to the, to the race riots, you know, this theme of, of no justice, no peace is uh, a 100 year theme in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Not simply his death, but the, again, the no justice. So um, there's no arrest, right? Yeah. So again, that continual theme. Now keep in mind the mix that we didn't talk about that that Peter expressed, you know, with United States joining the war was that now you have African American soldiers that 
have fought that have died to protect the value system of the United States and then come back to find that they still can't have justice when their humanity is attacked. Right. So that is stirring up as well. Absolutely. You've got the Harlem Hellfighters and other black regiments that have fought all over Europe and especially, as I understand it, in France, um, where they were at least treated with some semblance or closer to a semblance of dignity coming home to find that they are second class citizens at best um, and more often or as often just the the targets of, of racial animus. Can you talk a little bit more about what the goal is for the Chicago Race Riots of 1919 Commemoration Project? Talk a little bit about what the design of the project is and what what your hope is with it. Subsequent to the 1919, residential segregation will both be broadened and hardened through a ver- variety of tactics so that even today, the Chicago that we think of as segregated, um, really it's in the 20s that that drastically expands, right? Like, And so we understand that Although people may not know this history, why does it matter? It matters because we live in a city that still suffers from, um, not only due to the 1919 riot, but um, in no small part because of it. As I happen to have the good fortune to spend a lot of time in Germany in recent summers, I happen to spend a lot of time in Berlin, in particular, thanks to my partner's wonderful research fellowship, and I just followed her along. As a historian of America and um, African-American and living in Illinois, I was blown away spending so much time in Germany, and I happen to also be Jewish, um, that in Germany there's all these public um, monuments, parks, museums, um, etc., to the history of the Holocaust. And one example of an ongoing art project in Berlin and across Germany and Europe is called Stoppersteine, which in English means stumbling stones. And so a German artist named Gunter Demnig started this in the mid-90s, where he installed small brass plaques outside of the homes of people who had been victims of the Holocaust, starting in Berlin and in some 20 Jews who were killed in Auschwitz, right? And now there's 75,000 and more of these Stoppersteine or stumbling stones scattered across German and European cities, wherever the Nazis maybe were able to grab people and kill them. This is called public art because it's in the public sphere as opposed to in a private home or museum. And it's dispersed, right? Because you're walking down the streets, you don't know where you're going. Maybe you're having something, you're going to meet someone for dinner. Maybe you're thinking about what you're going to do later in the day. And then you stumble across metaphorically um, a reminder, a subtle yet powerful reminder that the Holocaust happened right here, right? That someone who lived right here had died, right, um, in this horrible event. Right. And then when I contrasted that with the history of the United States in the present, where if I walked down American streets, I would never know that actually the Chicago race riot happened. It's not only not taught, it's not visible in any sort of way. Right. Um, and so it occurred to me in 2018, really, and then uh, expanding in 2019, that what we could do here in Chicago is uh, apply that concept where, OK, the worst incident of racial violence in Chicago history, which is unknown, which is denied, if you will. What if we installed markers, right, at each location where someone was killed? So uh, a wrinkle instead of where someone lived, where someone died. Of course, not all the people died in the south side. Some, A couple died in the loop, a few on the west side, but predominantly on the south side, right? And so the core of the idea is that we could apply this German public art project that, that, that remembers Holocaust, people who died in the Holocaust, to our own country's history of racial violence, including but not limited to the events in Chicago in 1919. The idea is essentially to use public art to remember the past on our city streets, literally. Being a white kid from downstate, 
part of the time. I, of course, understood that I wasn't going to uh, sort of achieve this vision without having a whole bunch of important connections to people in Chicago. And that was how Franklin and I first met, right, is because I was appealing to an important community group in the neighborhood where the violence began and where a lot of the violence persisted. And I was so fortunate that Franklin and, and the Bronzeville Community Action Council was also interested in sort of remembering this, right, instead of persisting to sort of forget it, if you will. So let me ask why. And I, I know that sounds like an obvious question, but I, I want to hear it. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I want to hear your answer. Like, why, why yeah. the past? I, I think history has, you know, as Peter, you know, described his experiences in Germany, um, as we've, you know, learned in, in South Africa as well, or even public art being used in Sarajevo, and as well as other places, the path to healing and reconciliation never includes a mission, right? And so... For me, it's important for the work that we do in Bronzeville, where we talk about the the impact that public housing has had, the impact that uh, school closing has had, that that actually contributes to disrupting community cohesion, community social support, the ability for community members to come together around beliefs that they have to enforce those beliefs through collective efficacy and informal social control. It's important that people understand that these are mechanisms that have a historical origin, that they have a root, and it begins with the Chicago race riots. Unfortunately, in this in Chicago, there is a tale of, many would argue it's a tale of three, three different cities with the Latinx city, African-American, and whites and with the Latinx and African-Americans is a disproportionate impact of of social problems that are are connected to those communities. And so unfortunately, those communities get stigmatized at the individual level. What do I mean by that? Stigmatized that the violence that exists because of thugs or or youth groups that, or, or parents at the relational level or peers, people that youth hang out with or, or the communities itself, but rarely do we talk about the larger societal level, structural, systemic level processes. And I think that that story begins with the Chicago race riots. I think that as we try to activate and get our youth more involved in civics, more involved in critically analyzing their surroundings, why policy is the way it is, why why is there disproportionate um, funding sources in criminal justice as opposed to social services, that they understand that the mechanisms began with the Chicago race riots. I think it's the foundation that we need to be at in this city. Of course, I'm a historian, so I believe history matters. I mean, I think for all of us, who we are as individuals and as a community is only understood if we understand how we got here. But also, if our goal as in our particular country in our society of equality means anything, then we have to understand why inequality exists. Right. And that does not, like Franklin was saying, um, begin in 2020. It only is understood if we understand the long and deep path that we took to get here. But in particular, with racial inequality, uh, I always like to use the uh, metaphor of the splinter. If I um, get a splinter and I don't remove it, it does not disappear. It actually digs deeper uh, and it becomes harder and harder and harder to remove. And so in the same way that there is this persistent debate in our society, for instance, after George Floyd gets murdered, why is this happening? Right. It's because we've failed as a society to attack the core problem. Right. And it is only going to be more painful to remove the longer it takes for us to do so. And so the deep causes of our inequality uh, in our society have to be understood. Um, It is only through a reckoning with the past 
that we can actually move forward, right? Um, and so we have no choice, in my opinion, but to actually um, unearth this stuff um, in order to heal, right? And to move forward as a community. So let me ask you this, though. Why not have a series of lectures annually where people uh, simply talk about the events of that time and it becomes an annual reckoning where we hear about the events and, and why public art? What does that do when you talk about the stumbling stones in Germany? What, what did that provoke in you? Just talk a little bit more about why public art works of in a course. particular way. Yeah, I mean, we're all in favor of actually doing sort of lectures and sort of annual events um, because it's not either or, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a question of uh, both. But public art is brilliant. Yeah, because it sort of reaches the public. So that seems cute, but but that's important to understand. There are a lot of us who actually really want to sort of grapple with, engage with, and sort of move forward in a positive way. But there's a lot of us who actually are in denial. So how do you reach people? You have to go into the public. And so it's for people, I mean, you could read a book on the history of 1919 if you want. Most people have chosen not to. Through public events, um, but including public art, we can sort of essentially find people who um, weren't looking um, to learn this stuff. Um, and art, um, because it's sort of overtly, or at least hypothetically not political, even though it's often deeply political, you can also sort of essentially reach people in ways that otherwise they might not be reached. Um, and so the genius of Gunther Demnig was to sort of understand that public art was a way to sort of confront the past. That's, of course, the same reason that there's all this energy around taking down racist monuments and installing better ones, whether it's like we're doing to recognize the, the true history or also to sort of honor people who maybe deserve to be honored, like Frederick Douglass instead of Stephen Douglass. Um, it's all of this, right? But we deeply believe, even though Franklin's a public health professional and I'm a history professor, that public art is actually can play a central role in this process. I'm just going to, you know, just speak to my experience, you know, as a, a kid, you know, who went to school in Bronzeville and not only as a kid, but as a African-American child who, you know, although I'm very proud of the school that I went to, we didn't learn a lot about African-American history unless it was Black History Month in February. However, thanks to public art, if many, you know, Chicagoans are familiar with the 606 trail that, um, you know, that runs through like Armitage and Ashland all the way over to the West Humble Park community. There's a similar uh, branch line that used to exist up to 1947, the Kenwood branch line that branched off at 39th and went into Kenwood. Well, in elementary school where we had recess, where our playground was up against the concrete walls that, that um, were on that branch line. And on those concrete walls were murals of African-American key leaders in African-American history, key moments in African-American history. And what that did for me is that it made me curious. And the way that worked for me was that I went back home and asked, hey, who is this person? I talked to my mom or my dad, who is this? And it, it began to broaden that out. It began to stick with me in ways that was more accessible than African history, African-American history would have been um, through school. That is the impact that I think that we're going after, as, as Peter mentioned. Um, what are ways that we can capture those that maybe it's unintentional? Ways to educate that maybe a, a yearly lecture wouldn't be accessible to other folks. And so I think that, you know, for me personally, that's one way that that works. Peter, you said this is why it's important that it's in public space. But Franklin, what I'm hearing you suggest is that it's uh, like 
you know, you could have a sign that says what you want it to say, and, and maybe that's what it will look like. But it's the provocation of curiosity. It's, it's something like that mural, those murals that you observe, those pictures made you curious and want to learn more because they don't tell you everything. They don't give you all the information. You see a face or a figure and you want to learn more. Something draws you in. You want to learn more about it. So it's interactive Absolutely. in that way. So just talk a little bit about yeah, where you are in the process. Have you been in communication with artists yet? Do you sort of have a, any conceptual ideas about what this might look, sound, feel like, et cetera? For us, you know, although the history is extremely important and that we are drawing a connection of the origin story for why Chicago looks the way it does, we also have to be mindful that the 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 present impact that uh, exposure to violence, those individuals that are, have been victimized. In many cases, you know, um, you're, it's not whether you're either or, you can be a victim and a perpetrator as well. The harm that, that has come to specifically communities of color um, is profound and it's extremely disproportionate. So with that in mind, it's very important for us to have a present connection in terms of an artist or a group of artists. And what we were guided to kind of wanting to make sure that we're mindful of the individuals and the communities that are most impacted by intergenerational transmission of traumatic violence is working and partnering with someone that's leading in that work. And so that led us to Firebird Community Arts and its trauma-informed arts initiative called Project FIRE. Now, Project FIRE combines glass blowing, mentoring, trauma, psychoeducation, employment, and leadership opportunities for Chicago youth injured by violence. And so essentially what they're doing is they're glass blowing. We're talking to them about ways to create durable glass structures that have print screen that has a description of those that were fatally, you know, that died from the Chicago race riots, using individuals who are, are going through a transformative process through a trauma-informed arts initiative as the artists themselves. So now we're building a connection from victims of violence 100 years ago to the present. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's intense and amazing and awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> One Thank of the you. many reasons that Franklin is such an important part of this project and vision, right, is that he's lived and worked in this community for his whole life, including in public health for his adult life. And when he sort of brought Project Fire as an idea into the mix because of his previous work with them, I couldn't help but agree with you as well that it's sort of beautiful in a way. And so, um, of course, they also have been affected by the pandemic, um, but we very much are committed to sort of collaborating with Project Fire in order to sort of create um, our markers because it's just very appropriate for us to work with such a group. I can't help but think, too, that it's going to be incredibly powerful for the artists themselves and cathartic for them to be connecting, as you're suggesting, with these events from 100 years ago, the through line that travels through that century all of the events that have happened, you know, since then during that period and they're and processing their own trauma as well. Um, I mean, how powerful for them as artists, but how powerful, powerful as well for us, the recipients who will be able to see the product of their work. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Thank you. I just think that's going to be incredible. Um, yeah, that's wow. That's, that's wow. Is what that is. That's wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. Uh, can you talk a little bit, just a little bit more about what else is going on with CRR 19? I know this Saturday on the 25th of July, you have a bike ride. Is this the second year that you've done the bike ride? We are running an event um, a historic bike tour on the Saturday near where the riots began 101 years ago. Um, and there's a few other events, obviously. Looking Glass is doing an event, too, and that's wonderful. And the Brownsville Historical Society will do a small event um, on Monday, July 27th. We say one of the many reasons that public art is so important is because that lasts, that's durable, right? And so although we have yet to install any, in years to come, right, year-round, not just around the anniversary, we will be able to sort of recognize this history instead of waiting for an anniversary date. Our bike tour um, will be several hours. We'll start at the Green Line station on 35th Street in Bronzeville. Um, and um, we encourage, of course, everyone to bring masks and wear masks. We will be careful. Um, and Franklin and I, along with some others, will be um, leading people through various parts of Bridgeport, Canaryville, and Bronzeville to sort of connect past and present. Um, I think we're really excited about it. As a public health person, Franklin, mm-hmm. I can't help but imagine that you'll be you'll be all over the all over the mask thing and keeping things people out of <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Part of our aim, you know, we so far have raised approximately twelve thousand dollars towards this effort. And by we that's been primarily through uh, donations. Our goal, um, based off conversations that we've had with in the artistic community, is that they think $30,000 for all 38 locations should be something that we're aiming for. So we're, we're continuing to move towards that. Um, I'm going to end at what I think could get us to that point. But we're also, in addition to education campaign, research is very important for us. And so we're working with One Summer Chicago students. Peter has connected with DePaul students to continue to research on those that were killed during the riots. There's a, a lot that we can learn from the victims of the race riots. So we're working with youth, building this connection to work with high school and college students to continue to research. And of course, we want to build relationships with the stakeholders and the locations of the markers. So what does that mean? Ultimately, we want the CRR 19 project to be a community of stakeholders that are committed to educating those um, by really taking ownership over the markers and saying, you know, providing opportunities where maybe for the bike tours, maybe they're walking tours that other individuals are doing. Maybe they're doing bike tours as well. So how can we continue to partner with individuals to continue the education campaign? And then finally, to try to connect our experiences with our uh, the mobilization with youth and the schools and our community stakeholders and our civic leaders to share um, at, an, at the Tulsa event where they're commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to share our experiences, you know, at one of their events. Peter and I are avid, you know, bike riders. Peter definitely rides more than I do. But we know that one of the victims, Paul Hardwick, a black male was killed July 29th at Adams and Wabash approximately 101 years ago. Adams and Wabash is key because that's the start of Route 66. Well, Route 66 takes you, of course, all the way to Los Angeles, but guess what? It goes through Tulsa, Oklahoma. So we're thinking broadly about driving, flying, taking a train to Tulsa, Oklahoma 
then biking back 100 miles a day for the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots as a fundraising, as a way to reach that 30,000K goal that we have so we can distribute that. And we, in addition to the markers that we would like at 35th between the Wabash and State Corridor, we would love when we ride back to Chicago that we um, that we commemorate Paul Harwick's uh, marker at the end of that bike ride of that, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma is about 690 miles approximately 100 miles a day for seven days. Mm. So in theory, when would that be? The Tulsa Massacre of 1921 happened Memorial Day weekend, basically. So next year, Mm -hmm. a little less than a year from now, Tulsa will be commemorating the centennial of that event. And so we plan to be present in late May of 2021 in Tulsa and then pedaling back here um, immediately after the weekend. Hopefully it won't be too hot yet. Mm-hmm. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time well, yeah. talking to me, but also more importantly, the time that you're putting into this project, which I think is super. Well, thank you again for the opportunity. This is, uh, it's definitely been an honor and a pleasure. Um, well, for me as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the more, uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't be in more agreement with you that the more cognizant we are of our past, of our shared past, and the better chance we have of creating a slightly better future. My deep thanks to Dr. Peter Cole and Dr. Franklin Cozigay for joining us in this episode of The Infinite Room. We always like to give a shout out to some of our affiliated community partners, and it only makes sense to point you now towards the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project, which you can find at chicagoraceriot.org. You also heard about the Chicago Center for Youth Violence Prevention, where Dr. Franklin Cozigay is the executive director. You can find out more about them at voices.uchicago.edu backslash ccyvp. And lastly, Firebird Community Arts, which will be fashioning the objects that will eventually commemorate the victims of the 1919 riots. You can find them at firebirdcommunityarts.org. Looking Glass will be commemorating the 1919 Chicago race riots with our event called Summer 1919. The brainchild of Looking Glass Ensemble member and Mellon Foundation playwright-in-residence J. Nicole Brooks in collaboration with a whole bunch of other wonderful artists, and it will stream at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Monday, July 27th, the 101st anniversary of the death of Eugene Williams. Please go to lookingglasstheater.org to learn more about that, while you're there, please consider a donation to Looking Glass, which has an abundance of education and community-based programs across Chicago. Again, that's lookingglasstheater.org. We also want to give a shout of thanks to our two sponsors who are helping make the Chicago Stories Initiative possible, our friends at BMO Harris and at the Joseph and Bessie Feinberg Foundation. We are honored and lucky to have them as our friends and supporters, and we thank them from the very bottom of our bottomless hearts. Our artistic director is Heidi Stillman. Our executive director is Rachel Fink. Audio engineer is Rick Sims, who also wrote our fantastic theme music. Please check out the Looking Glass website, lookingglasstheater.org, to find out about other episodes of The Infinite Room and other ways that you can stay in touch with the Looking Glass family. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, please stay healthy, strong, and powerful. <laughs>